We are the richest country in the history of the world, and we have the most expensive healthcare system in the world. Yet we have the worst health statistics of all the 30 richest countries in the world. The maternal mortality rate for all U.S. women is about 33 per 100,000 live births. For black women, it is about 70. The maternal mortality rate in the European countries averages eight. The Scandinavian countries, two. The U.S. ranks 42nd in life expectancy among the countries of the world, with Cubans having a higher life expectancy. No matter how you look at it, our healthcare system stinks. It is a fraud. We need the real McCoy, the real McCoy, the real McCoy. What is wrong with our healthcare system that we are performing so poorly? The answer is simple. The purpose of our healthcare system is about making profit for health insurance companies, big hospital chains, pharmaceutical corporations, and increasingly private equity firms, not for the health and well-being of our people. No matter how you look at it, our healthcare system stinks. It is a fraud. We need the real McCoy. The real McCoy, the real McCoy, the real McCoy. Welcome to the third episode of The Real McCoy. I'm your host, Dr. Claire Cohen, a member of National Single Payer, Physicians for a National Health Program, and the Western PA Coalition for Single Payer Healthcare. Today, we are going to talk about Blacks and Single Payer Healthcare. Believe it or not, there was a time when the African-American community played a major leadership role in the struggle for single-payer health care. This role is best explored in a documentary called The Power to Heal, which was about the struggle to implement Medicare in the 1960s. I would encourage all of you to watch this powerful documentary, which you can access at Bullfrog Communities. The link is in the show notes. The first, and some would argue the best, bill introduced into Congress for single-payer health care was by Representative John Conyers, a black congressman. At the time he first introduced it, much of the black caucus of Congress was solidly behind it. Yet today, the black caucus is silent on the issue, and Representatives Claiborne, James Claiborne of South Carolina, and Hakeem Jeffries of New York argue against it, claiming that the solution to racial disparities in health care is through strengthening the ACA, or Obamacare, and Black activists and activist organizations, even when they decry the sorry state of health care for Blacks in the United States, almost never mention single-payer health care. When they do mention Medicare for All, it is fleetingly Many Black organizations, grassroots organizations only focus on expanding Medicaid and strengthening the ACA as the solution for universal, equitable health care for poor and working class Blacks. Sometimes they add um, increasing employer-provided health plans and training more Black doctors. Well, today I'm introducing you to three Black women physicians, all members of Physicians for a National Health Program who are playing a major leadership role in the fight for Medicare for All, or single-payer health care. Dr. Susan Rogers, the most recent past president of Physicians for a National Health Program, also 
known as PNHP, Dr. Claudia Fagan, Chief Medical Officer of Cook County Health, and Dr. Linda Ray Murray, Honorary Attending of Cook County Health Adjunct Pro Assistant Professor at the University of Illinois School of Public Health. The link to Physicians for a National Health Program, or PNHP, is in the show notes. I would encourage you to go to that site, which has lots of informational resources on the subject. The first question I have for each of you is, why are you fighting for single-payer health care? Why aren't you just advocating for fighting to expand Medicaid, strengthen the ACA, and maybe expand employer health plan coverage? Dr. Rogers, let's start with you. Okay, thank you, Dr. Cohen, for inviting us here to talk about this. I mean, like you said, all three of us are strong advocates for single payer um, to address the the structural inequities in our healthcare system that we have. Um, let me just make a few comments about the Affordable Care Act, which I think was promoted almost as the cure-all to whatever our health insurance issues were. And one of the things, myths that we have in this country is that if you have insurance, you'll be okay. If you don't have insurance, you might not be okay. But this whole idea that what is lacking is people having health insurance, I think was really that myth was laid bare by the ACA. One of the things about the ACA is that it had different tiers where you could pay different amounts for your health insurance, depending upon how much you wanted your deductible to be. And what that does really is the lower your premium, the higher your deductible will, uh, your deductible will be so that you're really not still able to afford the care that you need. And we have to remember that when you buy health insurance, there's often a deductible that you have to pay before the health insurance starts paying your bills. And when that deductible is very high, which is often more money than you may have. So the, the insurance, you never accrue, um, you can never pay for enough care before your insurance pays for your care. So that's part of the problem with the ACA. The other big problem was that it really uh, cemented the uh, involvement of private corporations, private insurance companies, um, and and institutions related to that as a middleman in between a patient and their insurance. And that what had happened was that insurance companies could now decide what you what kind of care you could get and what you couldn't get because it depended upon what tier you bought into, what your insurance was going to cover you for, how much your deductible would be. So it really did not solve the problem. There were many people who could not afford the ACA, could not afford health care uh, within the, the structure of the ACA, could not afford their deductible, could not afford their co-pays. And this is all, you know, the, the structure of private health insurance so that it did not fix the, pro the problem. It actually worsened it because it persisted with the myth that if you had insurance, you would be okay. And that's why people bought into it. I'll be okay now. I have insurance. And that I think they found as time went on that it did not fill that gap. It did not fill the need of people who needed insurance, who did not have the ability to pay 
for the deductibles, the out-of-pocket expenses, and all the other co-pays that were needed um, to have their to bring in and their insurance into writing checks to pay for your care. So the ACA, along with it not being um, really the same all over the country, was not equitable. So it wasn't the solution that we needed in this country, which is why we support single payer. It was not equitable to everyone, and it did not provide full coverage, full insurance for those who bought into it. Okay. Well, what about you, Dr. Fagan? And, uh, Besides the ACA, can you say something? I've also, I was just got off the phone with somebody this morning, a black unionist who was saying that their approach was to uh, increase the um, uh, expansion. He's from North Carolina of Medicaid as the solution. So what, what, um, why are you fighting for um, single payer? And, and do you have any more to add about the problems with ACA or maybe Medicaid sure. expansion? Sure. So I, I think that, um, the problem is both with uh, expanding Medicaid and the ACA is that they continue to promote a multi-tiered system. And until everyone is committed to the quality of care that we all receive, unless we all have to get in, receive the all, same level of care, uh, we're not, we're going to allow poor people to have poorer care than wealthy. And um, I happen to believe that everyone should deserves the best level of care. And so um, one of the huge problems that we have um, is that the ACA still leaves the, we pay insurance companies to limit our access to care. We pay an insurance premium and then they tell us what care we can receive. And until we can all receive the same level of care, until we can all receive the, have the opportunity to get um, the best care, um, there will be uh, disparities and we will continue to promote disparities. It's distressing to me that uh, people of color uh, want to promote the ACA when we suffer the most as a consequence of it. The insurance companies have a fiduciary responsibility to their investors to make as much money as possible for their investors. And therefore, they profit by limiting access to care. And so the notion that those are the people we put in charge of making healthcare decisions, what services are available in what communities um, is, is problematic. And they have a whole structure that is designed to, to limit access to care, their whole process of uh, prior prior authorizations, um, their process of uh, requiring approval for certain drugs. Um, every time a patient, a patient's uh, stay in a particular insurance plan, usually for less than two years now, because they have, if they have employer uh, sponsored care. And as a result of that, um, every time they, get a new plan, they ask, they, they reinvent the wheel. Okay, have you tried this seizure medicine? Why are we on that particular medicine? Have you tried that agent? And it's a hardship for patients. It's disruptive to care. And it's not uh, geared toward providing people the best care or the care they necessarily need. So I find that um, continuing to allow the insurance industry to dictate care as opposed to to uh, people who are involved in the delivery of care to make those decisions is, is very problematic. And the expansion of Medicaid in, in Illinois, um, there's a huge disparity between the level of care that Medicaid recipients receive as opposed to the care 
is available to uh, people who have insurance policies. And as Dr. Rogers said, we have this notion of believing, well, if I have insurance, that um, everything will be okay. And I'll just say as one final thing, as my personal experience, I'm the chief medical officer of Cook County Health. I, I make a very good salary um, and I have what I might've thought was good insurance. But um, you know, seven years ago, my husband developed leukemia and he was hospitalized eight times in his last year of life. And he had the first hospitalization, the bill was over $250,000. The second hospitalization, the bill was um, down to $190,000. The third hospitalization, it was down to $175,000. And while we're going in the right direction, I challenge anyone to say that they could afford to pay 20% of the cost uh, for that kind of care. He received excellent care, but eventually he succumbed to his uh, leukemia. And I would say that we don't have a system that's geared toward providing people the care they need when they need it, uh, because most people would decide they just couldn't afford that care. Okay. So um, till we uh, are committed to providing people the care they need, um, and we have the ability, we spend enough money on healthcare, we spend more on healthcare than any other industrialized country, and we spend enough money to provide coverage for everyone who lives within our borders, um, regardless of their status. And the problem is that we allow too many people to take profit uh, from healthcare, and those are people who are not necessarily involved in the delivery of healthcare. Okay. Oh well, Doctor Murray, I actually the first knew of you when you were talking uh, at a. Uh, I saw you talking at for a labor convention, so I always think of you uh, as in part connected with with uh, labor struggles. So. Uh, what about why you're fighting for single-payer health care? But maybe you can also say something uh, in addition, if you have anything to add to ACA or Medicaid expansion, maybe you could say something about why expanding employee insurance is not the way to go either. Well, let me just quickly say uh, about employee insurance. It's been shrinking for the past 15 years, the percentage of workers who are covered by that insurance. And I, I think it's important to people, for people, to Americans especially, to remember how we ended up with employee-based insurance. It was in exchange during World War II for not negotiating for higher wages. So in lieu of negotiating for higher wages, some workers, not most workers, but some workers were given uh, health insurance. In other words, even with employee-based health insurance, we're still paying for it. It just doesn't appear in your check stub. I agree with what uh, Dr. Fagan and Dr. Rogers have said about the weaknesses of, of uh, ACA and Medicaid. Let me just say two other quick things, and I, I, I want to go back to what we really need to talk about in terms of our community. Um, the, Obamacare was designed not to cover everyone. I think it was originally designed to cover about half of the people who had no health insurance. They never pretended it was going to be universal health care. So, so why do we think that would be a solution? And the second thing I want to remember, which after COVID should be really clear, Medicaid is not even a national plan. It, it's a it's a state-federal partnership. Medicaid looks very, very different depending on where you live. Uh, so, again, the concept of expand Medicaid has been expanded, I'm sorry, but it still is a state-by-state state program. Um, so we have to think about, to me, I just think simplistically, look, medical care and health care is a basic human right. And so we need to have a system that provides that right to everyone that lives in our borders. 
Now, America has trouble with rights. And we as a people, Black people, we should know about being lied to and not having our rights. It's like saying, well, let's abolish slavery on Sunday. You're going to be a slave six days of the week. You know, what does that mean? It makes no sense. Um, I, I also want to say uh, that this question of should we fight for a reform that we know isn't going to work, and how do we place that fight for reform compared to where we want to go. This is an important and not flipping question because obviously if you don't have health insurance, you're in big trouble and you will die more earlier and more frequently. Um, but I will say the one thing I've learned over time, including around this issue, we make a mistake when we back off and fight for less than what we need. Uh, the Conyers is not the first or the best solution in terms of what was introduced to Congress uh, for national health insurance. And that's Ronald Dellums, who in 1977 introduced the Health Services Act. And that really, to put it in simply, it called for a national health service to make sure that everyone in the country uh, had the same kind of care. It, it, did, it wasn't an insurance plan. We weren't paying a middle person for that care. Uh, there would be efforts to standardize the quality between rural and urban uh, there was uh, language in there about creating uh, career ladders uh, so that people weren't trapped in our little, you know, if you start off as a medical nurse assistant, you wouldn't be there for 40 years. If you wanted to, you could progress into other disciplines. So I I was certainly a supporter of that bill in the 70s. And when um, the single payer bill was introduced, I viewed it as an effort to have a quote unquote, easier reform. Well, that's been some 30 something years, 35 years ago. So obviously my notion that this would be a quick reform was wrong. Mm. Um, and so I, I think black people, we need to understand if we wait with all deliberate speed for us to solve this problem of health insurance, and that's not even the most critical problem we have to solve, uh, we're going to be here forever. Yeah. Uh, so to me, there's no question that we shouldn't be talking about expanding uh, Medicaid or uh improving ACA. Okay. Well, thank you for that bit of history about Ron Dellum's bill. Whatever happened to it? Did it go anywhere or did it just die in the, on a He introduced it he, much, much like his brother Conyers. He introduced it for years and years while he was in Congress. He never stopped introducing it. And we certainly did a lot of education and organizing around it. It was a much better crafted uh, bill. It was crafted as uh, a model kind of legislation. It wasn't crafted as something that could pass, obviously. Uh, but, you know, we can't even pass single payer, which is, after all, what is single payer? We're talking about simply changing how the money is passed around and, and getting rid of the hundreds of different insurance companies we have and stuff and and, and putting it into one. Um, so so it's a, it's a important reform, but it's only a reform. Yeah. Uh, and if and if we want to be healthy, we're going to need uh, universal medical insurance and we need many other things changed in the yeah. country. Yeah. So it sounds like already we're we've made a compromise when we we're pushing for single payer. Exactly. So, so, all right. Um, so um, I you've kind of gotten to uh, a lot of what I wanted to have people understand and hear about this. One question that comes up for me when I was talking to this um um, union activists and black union activists in North Carolina, and also talking to some people here in uh, 
Western PA who are in a group called um, Put People First, who are fighting to expand Medicaid, is um, in my state, all the Medicaid, um, Medicaid is actually um, subcontracted out to different private insurance companies. Um, and I, and according to the Commonwealth Fund, this is true in all but one or two states at this point. So is that part of the problem that Medicaid, even Medicaid isn't really a public program anymore? It's, it's, uh, it's because in Pennsylvania, my experience has been these private companies, they still want to make money even though they're supposedly servicing poor patients. So they find all kinds of ways to deny services. I, I, um, I'm a psychiatrist, but I've had some experiences where um, clearly a patient needs a certain service and that private insurance is, is, is you're having to fight tooth and nail with them. So is that part of the problem or, or is that not the only problem with Medicaid? Well, it's not the only problem, but it clearly, you know, it, insurance companies, regardless of who's running them, are exactly that. They're insurance companies. And, and what they've done in our in the setting of this country is they deny care. Uh, and we can quibble about what kind of care they deny and how, but the reality is we can pay for any kind of reasonable care without any trouble. There are other issues with Medicaid. For example, it's easy today to forget that women on Medicaid have been denied basic reproductive rights for decades. So the reality is Medicaid is, is uh, designed for poor people and our nation doesn't think poor people are human beings. And so that's the fundamental problem with Medicaid. Yeah. Okay. So you're talking about the Hyde Amendment when you're talking about denial. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But and the I'm other thing is Medicaid is Medicaid is, is often very grossly underfunded. And so expecting the insurance companies are, you know, trying to make be profitable off of a, a lack of dollars. And so they're only going to be successful with that by denying access to care. But even when they uh, states haven't delegated to private insurance companies, the lack of adequate funding to provide care for the population you're trying to provide care for means that you're going to have uh, minimal services available. So um, you find this with uh, limitations in terms of providers who will accept the, those, uh, that as a payment, whatever payment they've approved. And you'll find uh, it limits access access in terms of it may not be physically, uh, patients may not have um, access to care within their neighborhood, may have to travel great distances, and the uh, limitations in terms of the formulary, which medications are available. So all of these are things that limit people uh, or, or limit clinicians who are trying to provide access to care for these patients to make their uh, best clinical, use their best clinical judgment. Instead, they have to uh, fit within the rubric that is created, whether it's by the state government or by um, the insurance companies. Remind, reminding you that while Medicaid is federally mandated, it is, it is uh, funded uh, on a state-by-state -state basis, and the reimbursement varies from state to state. And some states are worse than others in terms of providing access to the various services. And there's certain services that are just not covered in some states. Um, and you allow local legislatures to make those decisions as opposed to clinicians. So if we, oh, go ahead, go ahead, let Susan. Let me make another comment about Medicaid too, that um, we look at, it's, it's a big uh, source of coverage for adults with disabilities. And that's how they get their their health care. It's not just children; it's you know adults too, and they get it. Uh, they get their health care through uh, Medicaid to care for their disabilities. And what this does, though, 
and many many people with disabilities are still functional in terms they can be able to work they can be able to do the things that many of us do and so it's not like they are bedridden and incapacitated they are just they have a disability which does not mean that their life stops but in order to get the health care for their disability you are forcing them into a life of poverty so that they can remain eligible for Medicaid, which is often totally unacceptable. It's always unacceptable to, to have somebody forced into that, but the only way that they can get their health care because they are not able to work full time or whatever reason, but so they are doomed to a life of poverty in order to get their health care. No matter how good you make Medicaid, that underlying structure is totally unacceptable. So improving Medicaid isn't going to solve that problem. Yeah, and I, I certainly, I think a lot of people listening to this who have had to try to apply for Medicaid and I'm thinking of Pennsylvania, that's been a problem because you have to show that you can't work but so many hours a week or and you have to show that your income isn't but so much and those kinds of things. So that's that's definitely, definitely a problem. Now, one of the issues that that I see is so many politicians are not talking about these things, but we do have are not talking about what are the are acting as if Medicaid expansion and ACA and and so on is the answer and and uh, they don't uh, mention they don't even mention Medicare uh, single-payer health care or Medicare for all improved Medicare for all as it's been called but we do have a few politicians I don't know about in your state but in our state we have representative summer Lee um and she uh is a relatively strong advocate for Medicare for all, although even she doesn't talk about it as much as she should. She talks about it whenever we hold town halls. Then she then she talks about it. But we notice that if we don't hold the town hall, she doesn't talk about it. Um, but I was wondering um, if there's something we could do to encourage politicians like Summer Lee. She's a, a rep to the House of Representatives for Pennsylvania, Corey Bush. And people like that to take more of an uh, I don't I don't want to I don't know if you want to use the word aggressive, but more of a active role in pushing their fellow Congress people to support medic uh, Medicare for all. Or even someday it would be nice <laughs> to see them push a national health service like Dr. Mary said. But at least what can we what can we do? We we have been trying to figure out how to get someone like Summer Lee to push this more, to not just do it when we hold a town hall. Do you guys have any ideas or suggestions? Well, we, 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 we have do? a lot of experience in Chicago with politicians <laughs> and you have to, you have to, you have to be clear on our, uh, the relationship we have. They work for us, not the other way around. And if they don't do what we want, then we need to do something about it. We had a nice young man once that was representing us in Springfield, our state capital, and we educated him about single payer and explained it to him. He's very bright. Uh, he, he got his lessons. I'd give him an A on his little uh, report card. We sent him off to Washington. He became president of the United States and made a conscious, clear decision not to support 
and not even to allow single payer to be discussed. Um, so he said he even said, well, single payer. And I remember hearing this. I was at the 2008 uh, convention. They interviewed him. He even said, well, single payer would be the way to go if we were starting over again. But that the American public is not ready to start over again. So he knew better. And you would expect him to know better. And I will tell you this. When Clinton was in, in the White House, um, I was on the national board of the American Public Health Association. And the first lady, who you remember, was in charge of his health reform, came to visit us in our offices. And she said right away, I know single payer is the way to go, but we're not doing it. So th there is not a problem here of these politicians understanding what needs to be done. If we don't have a movement underneath them, then they don't do what they're supposed to do for anything, not just uh, uh, anything. So what we have to do is remind people of the lessons we've learned. Uh, I want to come back to labor because that's a perfect example. Uh, you know, in this country, the coal miners for years, not for, not hasn't been for decades, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, set up their own clinics run by the coal miners union. Um, but they eventually couldn't compete with the, how American healthcare was going. Many of our unions had their own insurance companies, but the same problem happens. If you're if you're one small little insurance company and the industry's going a certain way, then they they basically went bankrupt. Probably the best example are the auto workers who, as you know, are now on strike, the UAW. The UAW used to be, used to have members in Canada, but they broke off and they have the Canadian auto workers. And so you have two unions on different sides of the border dealing with the same companies, okay? But in the United States, the UAW has to negotiate as part of their package for basic health coverage. In Canada, where they have a single payer system and healthcare is considered a basic human right, that's not even on the table. They spend their time negotiating on other critical things, health and safety, and other benefits for their members. So one thing we should learn from organized labor is, first, we need this to be a national system. This is not something one or two unions can do by themselves. And second, we need to make it apply to everyone. Equally, you want to cover everyone because the minute you don't, the minute you have a program like Medicaid, where the people on it are stigmatized, then you they will lose those rights that they should have. So talking about labor, so we're and we're going to have a pod, a couple of podcasts shortly, uh, talking about labor and single payer health care. And as I mentioned, I um, so UE this Pittsburgh happens to be the headquarters of UE, and UE, as you know is one of those few unions that uh, the union leadership is for single-payer health care. And it just so happens that the person I was telling you about, he's a friend who's an organizer in North Carolina. He's a member of UE. So uh, to my surprise, when I was inviting him to be on the show to be interviewed, he started talking about expanding Medicaid. I thought he I thought UE is supposed to be for Medicare for all. So how do, what can we do when we're working with the unions that are for it? How because this is the what we've been trying to figure out in um in in Pittsburgh, our Western PA coalition. How do we help support those unions that are for single payer? And what can we do? Uh what we found in Pittsburgh was the rank and file the rank and file for SEIU, which is actually the bigger healthcare union here, gets it about single payer. It's the leadership that doesn't. It. 
That's exactly right, because the leadership often serves on the boards of hospitals and insurance companies. And the leadership is um, actually not necessarily, in this instance, not re necessarily representing the best interest of their members, because they have, um, first of all, they have concerns about the impact. Of, you know, they've always asked questions about how this would impact their their pension funds, their ERISA, their they have always had uh, questions about that. And then in many cases, and I remember having this conversation in Detroit, um, the leadership has become entrenched and involved in the, um, the hospital boards and the insurance company boards. And so therefore they may have uh, vested interests that aren't necessarily um, would be supportive of a, a single payer system. Yeah. So is what's the do we have an what's the way around that then? And is there a particular role that um why is it telling me to ask to unmute? Um and is there a particular oh you're muted, Claudia, but that's okay. <laughs> um and is there a particular role the black community can pay in helping to uh bridge that gap and helping to break into that issue of of labor unions being more supportive for for single payer, as, as black folks, we need to demand. You know, it, it is not hard to see um, the horrific way in which um, COVID ravaged the black community, and uh, we need to ask those questions about why we didn't have access to the things we needed when we needed it. You know, so our you know, uh, folks were the frontline workers. And people think about doctors and nurses as being the frontline workers. You know, Black folks were the bus drivers, the grocery store workers, the folks who were providing the services that were vital for survival. And they were exposed to the virus and weren't able to get the care that they needed. And so we should not be shy about demanding the things that our, our community needs. And, um, you know, there are too many people who are, have vested interest in the status quo. And you should ask who profits from the current system. And so what we have been, um, I would say, too timid about is asking for, is demanding um, access to the, the best care available. You know, it is, you know, our folks who have to get up every morning and go to work and provide the services people need to get to work, to feed their families. And yet, when we had had uh, medical needs, we didn't have the the uh, access to the protective equipment. We didn't have access to face masks. We didn't have the protection that we needed. So this is an issue that uh, I don't know. We we struggle to get blacks to understand. This is something we need to demand, and we are too easily placated by saying, "Well, we're going to uh, provide insurance and provide um, expand Medicaid." When what we should be demanding is no, 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 no. We, we we don't want those middle people deciding what care we need. We want that those decisions about health care to be made by the people who deliver the care. And so we really need to help the community understand why we are being repeatedly again and again screwed by the system that they have in place. I mean, it was never more apparent than during COVID that um uh, black folks were we are the the frontline workers and that um, we don't have the things we need and we struggle to you know you get these uh, plans where you have these huge deductibles and uh, people can't afford their medications have to make decisions about paying rent 
or getting health care, they have to uh, struggle to find a provider who's in their plan, um, who will see them, who will take their insurance. And it should be, no one has a choice about it. The provider, you know, this is a provider you want to see. They should be, that should be a requirement that they take all comers. And so we have allowed um, our community to be cherry picked over, I would say, um, in terms of providing access. Yeah. And, you know, we're more than capable of demanding the right things. We just have to educate the community about what they're, um, how to get it, right? Yeah. yeah, so as I listen to you in Western, in Pennsylvania, the single larger employer of black women is uh, the healthcare system, the UPMC healthcare system. And they're not doctors. <laughs> they're those frontline workers you're talking about. In fact, I have a, a daughter who's a cardiac tech. Um, and um, one of the issues I see is, uh, is there's also some fear. And I don't know if other people have seen that. So there seems to be some fear for people. Well, in, in, in Western PA, UPMC is the big employer. It's the biggest employer um, actually for black women, it turns out, in the state of Pennsylvania, which I was shocked to find out. And um, when you talk to people, uh, and you start talking about this issue, they can say, yeah, I hear you, but I'm afraid UPMC is horrible when it comes to trying to organize workers. They fire you in a minute if they think you're thinking about thinking about organizing. So people will say, yeah, I, I hear you, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid that if I push uh, for these things, I'll be out of a job. Uh, so I don't I don't know what 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 to say to people. How can we help people? Uh, we formed this group called the Black Workers Center. <laughs> I don't know, though, it, we're, but we're still hearing the same thing for people. And by the way, what we heard from them is that one of their biggest issues besides wages is medical debt. Um, mm -hmm. But when we start talking about this, that's the big <clears throat> issue we hear. If I push too hard, I'll be out of the job or my I'll be out of the those who are in SEIU. I'll be out of the union. So what, what, they aren't wrong. They aren't wrong, you know, but that's gone on for, for decades, for generations. My dad was a labor union organizer and he was often fired from his job. Mm -hmm. um, not just so, it, 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 so what's our yeah. what what's our solution? That's what we're trying to work on with this black worker center reform. We're trying to figure out how to help people without causing them to lose their jobs and to be kicked out of their unions. What is there an answer? And you may not have the answer, but is there, there something there, we can it's do? It's not just labor that is at risk of the jobs. I mean, if we go back to the political forces who could advocate for a single payer system, if you look at Clyborne's mm -hmm. district, mm -hmm. the main income of his district is $30,000. So where does he get his money from to fund his campaign? He doesn't get it from the people who support him, for the people that he, in his district, that he is to govern. Mm -hmm. And that's a big problem since Citizens United and who was funding these politicians. And although we, you know, we would hope that they would follow you know what they should do follow the what the people need they 
they can do nothing if they don't stay in office. And it becomes, I think, difficult for many of them. And I think that's why we get so disappointed with politicians. And just if they advocate too much, they won't get funded. Just as someone in labor advocates too much, they won't get funded. And so I think that because of those inequities of where funding comes from is making it difficult for them yeah. to be our, you know, cheerleaders. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Exactly. The threat to, to our democracy is, is the key thing. And this is the same issue in the union. You know, Sean Fain, who is now the president of the UAW and leading, brilliantly leading this important strike, um, he started off on the outs. You know, he was he was uh he was a protest person. They they hired him on staff to shut him up. Uh, but he just uh, he kept fighting. And and so that was a reform movement within the UAW that elected him and changed the attitude and stance of that of that uh, union. So uh, the, it, and there's no magic bullet. So this is to say, I don't care whether you're trying to improve your kid's school or get a playground in your neighborhood or a stop sign. Uh, you're going to have to organize with other people. That's what you have to do. And even then, you could easily get fired or or, or have uh, bad things happen to you. Yeah. Uh, but if we don't do it, then we'll continue to die unnecessarily. Yeah, the so movement what, has to be bigger than any one person, right? Yeah. And, you know, this is this is what uh, my dad used to say. You know, as often as he wound up in unemployed, you know, you have to con you have to advocate for what you know is right. You have to fight for that and you have to convince others to fight for that. Mm -hmm. And the more people you get on your side fighting for that, mm -hmm. the more powerful you become. And, you know, politicians, the one thing that politicians are about is getting reelected. You know, members of Congress. I mean, that's that's the first thing that when they get elected, the next thing is, is focusing on how they're going to get reelected. And so um, it's holding them uh, accountable and, and, and bringing them. Uh, enough people who they feel are their constituents who support them. And as Susan points out, they need people with money who are supporting them and advocating and, and, and they, they understand power. So it, it, it's a huge issue for them. Um, understanding yeah. um, they will push back. They will avoid those sticky issues as long as we allow them. And we have to demand that they advocate for the things that we need. And right now, we are not holding uh, members of Congress accountable. We are not forcing them to advocate for the things we need. We're allowing them to do this petty bickering and not uh, fighting on the substantive issues that make an impact on people's lives on a daily basis. So what I hear all of you saying, what it sounds like you're saying is this is something that's going to take a lot of time and effort. Um, I know in Pittsburgh, we're building a movement. We're starting to see some uh, some effect. It's from a lower level, though. It's not as much from Congress. Right now, we're, we we are getting some really progressive, uh, forward-looking people on our local county council. But maybe that's a start. <laughs> to, to That's a start. Let and, me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the civil rights movement is over? No. Uh, well, then that, that this this is a social justice issue, just like civil rights. Yeah. And what people have to understand is you have to be in it for the long haul. Yeah. The, and those people who think we're in a quote unquote post-racial society, you know, either have their eyes closed or, or, or not living in the United States. Yeah. And so um, the issue of uh, universal health care 
is an issue just like I, I remember how long did we march against the war in Vietnam and say it was the wrong thing to do? How long do we have to um, say we have to spend the time on the front lines advocating for the things that we know are a problem? And, and um, you know, people have to have the patience for the fight. Yeah. And that and that is um, and that I think that and we have to be willing to start on a lower level and not fo we're all, always focusing just on the president. But we've had some recent really uh, good victories here. We've gotten uh, our county council to start thinking about not only Medicare for all, but we got them to ban fracking uh, in, in, the, in the parks. And we're trying now to get fracking banned in all of Allegheny County because I, there was a big study by the University of Pittsburgh showing that fracking people who live within uh, uh, 10 miles of fracking wells, there's a higher incidence of premature births, there's a higher incidence of asthma. 30% of kids, of black kids in, in, in Pennsylvania, Western, Western Pennsylvania, I'm sorry, have asthma. So one of the things that I, I hear you guys saying is, we got to have patience. We got to build the civil no, rights. No, 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 no. We don't have to have patience. Wait a minute. Let's, I mean, admitting that, that I may not live to see this is one uh, thing, uh, but that doesn't mean we need to be patient. Oh, okay? I don't mean patient in terms of just waiting. Or, I mean, or, or in, have patience. We I mean, be... in terms of building that movement, we can't say, well, we didn't build it yesterday. So it's the end. We have to. We have it, to keep have a long. We have to demand what we need, and right, there's a right. reticence, you know, to say, "Well, we'll accept this." No, no, no. We have to demand what we need. Um, you know, we celebrate the victories, but we it starts by demand making, not making small plans, not by not not for settling for less. It it, it requires you to constantly again and again. Say, well, that's nice, but that's not what I need and continuously demand what we need. And that's what we as Black folks have had this tendency not to do. Okay, they gave us, uh, okay, so this school is nice. I mean, the building is nice, but it, it's not the same thing as the folks on the other side of town. You know, we settle for less and, and we've been too willing to settle for less. We have to demand what we need. Yes. And what and we have to do with our community is educate them is that they're not asking for enough. Yeah. You know, we don't and want insurance. We want access to the care we need when we need it. Yeah. And insurance the insurance industry has demonstrated that they are not capable of providing us with that. Yeah. Because yeah. they're too busy serving their investors. Yeah. So you're right. Not patience, long, a long vision. <laughs> That's okay. a better word. A long vision on what we need and then keep up the fight. So um we're kind of getting near the end. So I want to wrap up with um because even though we're saying we're fighting for single payer and uh, health care, and, and Dr. Murray, you already alluded to this, that even single payer is a compromise and not enough. But what would be your, each of you, I'd like to end with you each talking about if in an ideal world, what would be your vision of the health care model that uh, we should fight for without thinking about what the limitations are or what's pragmatic, but what is the vision of what we as a people should fight for, the kind of system? So maybe we can end with each of you talking about, about that. That's a tall order, but... <laughs> 
we need a revolution. So to be <laughs> to be healthy, you know, the medical care system is just a minor contribution to us being healthy. You know, that means people have to they have to have basic safe jobs. They have to live in in a planet that's not burning up every summer. Uh, you know, the basic human rights that we often talk about. That's what we need in order to have a healthy people in a healthy world, healthy community. So we shouldn't lose sight of that. And yes, I like to think that the medical care system and physicians may be a small part of that, uh, but but that's what we need. Um, if, if I could fix one thing, to be honest with you, uh, one one little system, I would fix education uh, because that's how you, that's how you secure democracy. That's what our ancestors were clear about. That's one of their first things they did on emancipation is fight for a public education system. Uh, because if, if you have an educated people, then you can they can fight to defend their rights uh, and retain their rights. Okay, well, that's one of my other fights. So maybe I'll start another podcast sometime to talk about that one. But okay, what about you, you Claudia and Susan? Yes, so, so, you know, Dr. Murray was the one who talked me into going to medical school. Um, and if I learned nothing else from her, it's that everything is health. So it's that, uh, you know, people having decent housing is, is health because it has such an impact on your health. People having a safe place to exercise uh, because that's the impact on your health. People having uh, decent transportation, all those things are health. We have focused so much on the delivery of health care, the medicalization of life that, uh, you know, we lose sight of the much bigger picture. So if you ask me what... Um, would the system be that we would fight for? It would be a recognition that people need uh, decent food to eat, uh, a safe place to live, and, and transportation. All of those things have much more of an impact on our uh, overall health than uh, guaranteeing you access to see a physician uh, or a provider of your choice. Um, so while single payer is a financial conduit, you know it fixes the financing. Um, because I believe that everybody, until everybody is, uh, has to stand in the same line to get health care, they aren't invested in the quality of the care at the front of the line, um, as opposed to making sure people have the things that they need to uh, improve their health and live longer. And one of the reasons that uh, COVID impacted us so negatively as a community was because we didn't have those other things, because we didn't have uh, decent housing because we couldn't isolate without exposing everyone else in the household. Um, we didn't have um, access to the basic th human things that we need to live. Yes, healthcare is a right, um, and we should have much more say about what healthcare is and what a healthcare delivery looks like. But we have to look at those basic human rights that this country just um, doesn't pay attention to and 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 is not invested in. Okay. Well, Dr. Rogers, it looks like you're going to end up, you're going to come to bring out the end of the show. <laughs> so. I don't know how to follow Dr. Murray and Dr. Fagan, but, but you know, one of the things I, I think the biggest problem that I see is just the, the whole need to continue inequities to support the current structure. And as long as that is there, that structure will be there. I mean, look at some of the things that were done to address the problems in COVID. We had drive-through testing. 
Now, in a poor community with the highest rates of COVID, how many people have a car? <laughs> so you build a structure mm -hmm. that reinforces the inequities. You know, people still can't get tested. And then we blame the individuals. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's, and the way we did with hospitals, how we reimburse them for their beds. Nonprofit poor hospitals got less for, per bed you know, from the government to help them stay afloat than the wealthier hospitals that were sitting on billions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we, you know, until we can get that inequity, there will always be cracks in the structure that we create to get an equity within healthcare. And I think we have to remember that, that that's what this country was built on. This whole thing about we have to get our democracy back. Show me where it was in the first place. First place, yes. <laughs> you yes. know, I mean, yes, that's what I say every time I hear somebody say that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, this was perfect. I think this is this is excellent, and I hope everybody listening to it um, found it informative, but also provocative and in, in getting people to think about what we really need to do. And I really like that we have to fight, we have to demand what we need and not compromise. I think that's really important. We as black people have to get back. There was a time when we were doing that, at least I thought back in the sixties and so on. We gotta get back to that. Um, okay, so that's all the time we have for today. Thanks Dr. Rogers, Fagan and Mary. Uh, for this very thought-provoking and informative hour. If anyone wants to get in touch with you um, uh, to continue this discussion, but also bounce off ideas um, and learn more about not only the fight for single payer, but the fight for expand, the fight for all of our rights, how can they contact you? Why don't you each give us a... They can uh, contact the National PNHP office. That's the easiest oh. way to reach us. Okay. So if they, call, if they contact the office office, they'll help them out. Okay. PNHP.org. They, they, yes. they and and that's going to, that's, that's in the show notes. You can just look in the show notes and you will see that address. So thank you all three of you. I think this, I, I'm, I just think this was the, I'm going to take it to every black community <laughs> grassroots meeting and, and play this for people. Thank you very much. <laughs>